Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. My name is Douglas Haynes and I'll be your host for this hour. When we're going to talk about school meals, child nutrition, food equity, with a great panel of uh, guests here today. First of all, though, I want to uh, announce that our fall fundraising drive drive is over. Thank you to the more than a thousand people who called or went online to pledge and donate during the drive. We did not quite make our goal here at 89.9 FM Community Supported Radio. We're hoping to uh, buy some new soundboards that the station really needs, and we would uh, really appreciate a few more donations over the next week. Our online donation page at wortfm.org is still open. The orange donation button is there, available to take your pledges or donations. And thank you gifts are still available through Sunday, October 9th. You can pledge, donate by credit card or PayPal, or sign up to be a monthly donor or increase your monthly donations. So please keep that in mind uh, if you haven't donated yet uh, while you're listening to the show today. We are going to dive into the subject of school meals And I'm going to put that, first of all, in the context of the second-ever White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health that President Biden hosted last week, where he pledged to end child hunger by 2030. At the conference, he said, if you look at your child and you can't feed your child, what the hell else matters? Well, sadly, in the U.S., we've decided that a lot of other things matter more. In 2021, children in more than a quarter of a million U.S. households skipped meals or did not eat for entire days due to a lack of money to buy food. Hunger is particularly widespread among children of color. Black and Hispanic households are at least twice as likely as white households to experience food insecurity. Nonetheless, the federal government has ended a pandemic child tax credit that helped avoid substantial increases in child food insecurity. And government support for universal free school meals expired on June 30th of this year. In the wake of this support ending, school districts have been left scrambling to provide and prepare food for student meals. Staffing shortages and supply chain problems have exacerbated this challenge. In order to attract food service workers, the Madison Metropolitan School District recently raised their wage by $5 an hour. Today, we're joined by a panel of guests to talk about the challenges facing school meal providers and local and national efforts to improve childhood nutrition and food equity. I'd first like to welcome Ursula Ballard, who's a registered dietitian with the Madison Metropolitan School District. Welcome, Ursula. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we also have with us Dr. Jennifer Gaddis, who is an associate professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies at UW-Madison and the author of The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. Thank you for joining us, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we also have uh, from the Madison Metropolitan School District with us, Josh Perkins, who's the Director of Food and Nutrition at MMSD. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. And finally, we have Allison Paff Harris, who's the Farm to School Director at Reap Food Group, whose mission is to transform communities, economies, and lives through the power of good food. Welcome, Allison. Thanks, Douglas. Looking forward to the conversation. 
And welcome, listeners. We'd really love for you to join our conversation today. I know there are a lot of people out there talking about this issue in Madison right now. If you have a question about school nutrition in Madison or beyond, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message us at a public affair on Facebook. So I'd like to get started with you, Josh, as Director of Food and Nutrition at MMSD. And just give us a basic overview, please, of the number and kinds of meals provided at MMSD every school day and what's involved in getting uh, these meals to students here. Yeah, thanks. Um, it's, a, it's a huge effort. I was looking at some recent numbers, and as you know, we just concluded our first full month of operations. I think we have some work to do to get all of the CEP schools, the community eligibility provision schools, um, in, into a full count of meals. I saw 227,000, about, about 228,000, uh, if I round up by 70 meals for September. Um, and I took a look at some of our CEP schools who count meals a little differently. And I think we have to we have to firm up that number. Late last year, right as I just joined the district, uh, it was a it was about 18,000 meals a day. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some change between now and then. Uh, but that's that will give you a general sense of what we're getting out in the district. Um, from where I am today, sitting in the food production center at Flom, uh, we are producing primarily elementary meals, and that can that can be alone about um, 14 or 15,000 meals a day between between the two breakfast and lunch. Uh, to try to give a, a, an accurate and concise answer to your question about what it takes to get that out there, it's a colossal amount. Um, I, I, I wanted to touch first on the, the productive capacity that happens here and all the staff who help um, essentially get out the, the meals to our about 30 elementary sites um, in, a, in a way that they can serve with very limited um, facilities. And that's, I think that's been true um, for a while and just wanting to make sure that the meals are high quality and get out there to sites that don't have a lot to work with. Um, like I said, they between breakfast and lunch, you're talking about 14 or, or about 15,000 meals a day going out of here to make sure the elementaries are served. And then our secondary levels do things a little bit differently. Um, they're, a, they're a little bit larger kitchens and a little bit better equipped. So the staff in those sites are able to do something, you know, I, I came originally from a background in, um, non-food service and restaurants, and th those kitchens are a little bit more like you would expect to see, I think, in a standard restaurant setup with some of the larger cooking appliances and able to um, be flexible in what they serve. So they're doing a lot of their own production on site. Um, that takes that takes a large team, um, especially for schools that are combined, they have a couple of combined grade levels, and they're juggling not only needing to serve those two grade levels, but different nutritional patterns. So they have to be really agile in doing so. Uh, so it's a combination effort. You know, it's it's an effort that happens between all of the meals that are produced here that are ready to heat and serve for the elementary sites and then secondary sites all the way from sixth to twelfth grade who are doing a lot of their own ordering, uh, production of food and service of food. They're they're really independent. So I hope that gives a sense of what it is, you know, with with that many schools across the district. Um, and that those many differences in the program, it, it's a huge effort on the part of, of the staff who are out there in our sites. Thank you, Josh. Absolutely. That does give us a sense of the mammoth task you have every day, uh, getting students 
fed. I'd like to turn to you, Ursula, and uh, have you give us a sense of the nutrition considerations your staff keeps in mind when planning meals, and maybe to give us a few examples of what a typical school lunch at the different levels of uh, education are in the district. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So um, as far as school lunch, we're based, um, we're required to meet the, um, the, the school lunch guidelines. They're based on the, um, off of the dietary guidelines for Americans. And through that, um, it's similar to, if you think of the my plate. So you have, um, as far as the five components that, um, that all the meals sh- that, uh, that, that we should provide are meat and meat alternatives. So like chicken, turkey, fish, beans, eggs, things like that. And then fruits, you know, apples, oranges, bananas, uh, vegetables, um, salads, um, broccoli, tomatoes, things like that. And within those uh, vegetables, we have five different subgroups that we're required to to actually meet every single day um, uh, to actually uh, meet, um, ensure our compliance uh, every day. And then um, uh, the other two, we have milk. Uh, so you, you could offer like a, a non-fat um, chocolate milk or strawberry milk or white milk. Here in Madison, um, here at MMSD, we do not offer chocolate milk. Um, um, we only offer chocolate milk at lunch. We do not offer chocolate milk at breakfast. So that actually helps reduce our, um, you know, um, n- not only um, helps reduce our sugar um, uh, sugar content, but also our, um, also our sodium content as well. Um, and with that, um, and then I'll, um, also in, in addition to the, um, the milk, we also have the uh, fifth component would be grains. Um, MMSD throughout the past several years, the changes with the um, with grains and a reduction in grains. MMSD, I do want everyone to to know that we have not changed and gone to a non whole grain um, um, grain when we're providing whether it be uh, brown rice or our pizza or um, um, hamburger buns or hot dog buns, all of those have maintained um, um, have maintained and whole grain. So we are actually we've been exceeding what um, what the what the federal guidelines um, have been. Um, in addition to that is uh, sodium requirements. So we are required to meet sodium requirements. Um, it's in, based on an average throughout the um, throughout the week, and um, a, a couple years ago, the um, um, uh, school district decided to um, ensure that there were uh, no or minimal added sugars. So the um, uh, recommendations we are actually below that. I'm you know make sure that any new products that come in, uh, they have um, they still do have some added sugars, but um, not a large amount. Um, you know just by number one limiting the amount of juice that we serve. We do not serve juice every day. Um, um, in whether it be elementary, middle, or high school. And then um, one of the other things I wanted to mention is um, um, because of COVID and not um, and not having the salad bars, we've actually added um, side salads to um, every meal in middle, in, excuse me, in elementary and um, elementary and middle school. And then in high school, we've also added um, entree salads every day as well. So, so we're, um, we're, um, eventually, we'll add a little bit more variety in middle and high school. We have about 
three different rotations of side salads. Those are at no charge. So if a student wants to come through and wants the salad um, in addition to, to their meal, uh, they'll, they'll actually be able to, um, they'll actually be able to receive that um, as well. So, um, you know, with, there are certain things that we have to do, um, you know, to actually meet the USDA uh, guidelines to ensure our compliance. But um, we do everything that we can to ensure that um, the variety is there, you know, just by adding these side salads and the um, entrees. And, you know, um, really our, our number one goal is is our, um, our customers are our students. So to make sure that we're providing, um, you know, what, um, what, what they will enjoy as well. Thank you, Ursula. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and we're talking today about school meals, child nutrition, and food equity with uh, a panel from uh, Madison Metropolitan School District, uh, Dr. Jennifer Gaddis from UW-Madison, and Allison Paff-Harris from Reap Food Group. And we are digging into the issues facing uh, school meal providers today. Um, Josh, can you give us a little bit more detail? We've been hearing in the press about recent funding issues, staffing shortages, and supply chain problems, and how they've been impacting the school lunch programs in MMSD and obviously elsewhere as well. Can you give us um, some more detail about how you've been experiencing those impacts? Sure. Uh, as as you alluded to, it's it's not unique to MMSD. I've I've never I've said to the staff recently. I've <clears throat> worked in food service for decades, and I've never seen it quite like this. I think that it's hit it's hit every aspect of serving, preparing, and serving food in in this country and outside of this country. I, I know that it's also an international um, impact as far as um, people wanting to get into and stay in jobs uh, preparing and serving food in the district. Uh, we have we have a model basically because of the scale being one of the main factors. We have a, a model that's absolutely reliant on a skilled and invested staff to make sure that the meals are served at a high quality standard. Um, there's no backing out of that. And so when we have um, issues with staffing, which I think in part stemmed out of the operations changes that happened during COVID, um, COVID is not over, but it, it has reached a point where I think it's more manageable. But during the pandemic, the early stages, I was also working in K-12 food service then. And so much changed about the way that you not only could, but had to serve meals within communities that really relied on them, um, that it, it changed the way people thought about staffing. And in some ways, uh, staffing became, it became possible to serve more meals with fewer people. It also was a necessity because of safety concerns, social distancing. And that affected the, the world of food service, I think, in a long lasting way. So as we've tried to come out of this this year, um, we saw uh, up, up to uh, through the summertime, before the summertime, we knew we were very low on staff. Um, it's, it's been documented in the press numerous times and continues to be discussed how hard it is now to get, to get people to want to get into and to stay into jobs like these that, that prepare and serve food. Notwithstanding the fact that we have a number of uh, staff members who are tenured and have a very strong investment in the children of the community, and want to continue doing something that has that that deeper level of meaning that simply serving a sandwich. I think they really are aware of their place in the community and what they offer. But we we had to figure out uh, very much in the vein of what I what I was mentioning. How how are we going to make sure that we get meals served, knowing that we're below the staff levels that we would prefer to and in some cases needed to be at, 
And so we figured out menus and this, this happened. We were taking, we were taking in updates about what staff levels we were working with really, really late in the summer to try to figure out, well, what is our opening team? Who do we have? What, what roles can they occupy effectively and how do we get meals out to kids? And so we had to, we had to think of the menu as a, a moving target as we went through the summer to say, bottom line is we have to serve a meal. How are we going to do it knowing we don't have as many staff as we, we thought we maybe thought we would have or would prefer to have as we open up school? And, and that went on until, until late, um, right, right before opening and saying, well, this is, this is what we feel that we're, we're guaranteed to be able to do as we open school. Um, since that time, not in small part because of the vote by the board to increase the wage schedule for food service workers, uh, we've seen things change quite a bit. I wouldn't say that we have gone from one end of the spectrum to the other, but we've seen a marked interest in uh, people applying for the positions. Um, we've made some real progress in hiring and we've made some real progress towards getting back to the menus we had originally planned. We put a lot of thought into that late last year and we were really excited to, to be able to offer it. And that, that, was, that was part of the strong suit of where we were operating from was we actually already had a vision and a plan um, we just needed to make sure we built the team to execute it. So that's that's kind of some of the way we've experienced it. Um, we've had to be really flexible. And I know I've I've thanked personally many staff members who were flexible along with us. People who in many cases had a home school that they had been working in and preferred to stay in, but we needed them elsewhere. We and this has almost been a day to day project. You know, this is what we're looking at for the team today. Could you help us at this school? Because if we if you if we don't have extra support here, we're going to have problems serving meals, and the team has been uh, in, incredibly resilient in saying, "Yes, I'll, I'll just move to that school if that's where the time is needed." So we've relied on our team, a big team, to to move along with us when we needed to. And even though it was not easy, <laughs> some days were certainly not easy for any member of the staff. Um, we we did not fail to serve a meal, um, and so I, I I really I credit. My, my team, the management team, but also especially the field staff at MMSD for making that possible. Thank you, Josh. We're going to turn to you, um, Jen, now to talk a little bit um, about the broader context of labor and salaries in particular in school meal programs. Can you talk about that relationship between food service workers' salaries and the quality of school lunch programs and give us a sense of working conditions for food service workers nationally? Sure. Um, one thing I would really like to emphasize is that in most school districts, school nutrition staff tend to be either the lowest paid or maybe tied for lowest paid staff within the public school system. So that was the case here in Madison. And that's actually one of the reasons why this $5 an hour base wage increase is such a huge deal. So I think jobs in Madison um, previously started at around 15, um, a little, I think it's between 15 and $16 an hour. And that will be um, between 20 and 21. So that's a huge jump up, especially when you think about not only the hourly wage, but also the access to benefits that many workers can actually get um, working within the school system that they might not have access to um, in the private sector. So 
I'm really encouraged by the fact that Madison went from maybe being um, lagging behind actually many school districts in terms of increasing workers' wages, particularly um, over the last couple of years of the pandemic when um, a number of school districts um, actually across the state and nationally have had to increase wages. Um, I think Madison was lagging behind, but with this very recent investment um, from the school board, I think is actually um, really uh, showing a, a large um, amount of confidence um, in uh, not only what the School of Food Department can do when properly staffed, but also um, in really investing in a high road solution to really trying to um, increase the quality of jobs and the quality of the food. So the easiest way that I really think about um, this relationship between food quality and job quality um, is really about a lot of people that I talk to in the district um, might say that, well, we really want our kids to be eating fresh food. Or if you talk to students, they might have different ideas of like, you know, what's tasty or what's healthy. But a lot of them really do emphasis, um, place emphasis on fresh cooking. So um, if you don't have enough staff um, or equipment or infrastructure to do scratch cooking, you're going to be relying a lot on heat and serve pre-prepared foods. So it really takes a skilled labor force that are given enough hours and the appropriate equipment and infrastructure to be able to execute a lot of scratch cooking in schools. So I really see the kind of investment that Madison has been making um, over the last few weeks in their labor force as a big piece of the puzzle. But another piece is for us to really be taking a look over um, the, the next, you know, maybe three to four years about like, well, what is our infrastructure in the city? Like if we know the direction that we might want to be headed in and we're starting to address this labor issue, what are the other pieces of the puzzle that we really need public investment um, to support? Because I think we could have a really amazing program here with a lot of culturally relevant meals, wonderful farm to school sourcing. We see sort of like snippets of this happening, I think, across the district in different schools, but it's not really happening, um, I think, to the extent that it could be with additional public investment. So some of the programs that I really encourage people to look at um, are programs like that in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a pretty similar sized school district um, to ours. Um, about 10 years ago, they were primarily operating out of a central kitchen, um, pretty similar to what Madison operates out of here today. Um, and there's also a lot of different school districts um, in states like California and Vermont and Maine that have recently won universal free school meals for all the students in their state that are really able to do like pretty like fundamentally like different things because they're actually providing free meals to all students. And it's really seen as part of this educational enterprise and this thing that we invest in for all children. So I think in Madison, um, we have these different pieces of the puzzle, right, in terms of what food justice or food equity looks like. One is us really needing to work on getting access to free school meals for all children. So there's a statewide campaign right now called Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin Coalition that I encourage people to get involved with. And then there's these things that at the district level, I think we really need to focus on, particularly um, this investment in the infrastructure and equipment for scratch cooking to go along with this recent investment in the labor force. And I think that's how we, we get to a really phenomenal program. Thank you, Jen. Uh, I'd like to follow up on that that point about uh, regaining support for universal free school meals, which existed uh, briefly during the pandemic everywhere anyway. Um, and you mentioned this campaign statewide and you mentioned a couple other states, Jen, uh, that have already provided that. Um, what is the general outlook for regaining support for universal free school meal meals, either here in Wisconsin or nationally as well? Um, uh, would anybody else like to jump in the conversation there? Or Jen, would you like to add anything about your sense of the the timing and outlook for that? 
Yeah, so you opened um, the um, segment today talking about the White House conference and the Biden administration did um, express their intention to move toward universal free meals. So I think it is something that's a priority for this administration and many of the experts from all across different sectors of um, child nutrition, um, hunger, um, you know, just um, really a, a wide cross section of different social interest groups um, really mentioned that this was something that they recommend as like foundational to improving the health, hunger and nutrition of um, this country's children. So it's not like a particularly controversial recommendation um, in terms of health and wellness. And we also know that academic achievement um, tends to be better in schools that are offering um, free school meals for all. And we also know that there's reduced stigma for those students, particularly from lower income households who might feel a little bit reluctant um, to participate in the federal school meals program because it might signal um, that their household is lower income. It really takes away that stigma. And I think that there are a lot of students and a lot of households that are um, you know, above the cutoff for free and reduced meals who are still struggling economically, who really would benefit from access to school meals and don't currently have none. Um, but it's not even just about the economics. It's also about how do you create a culture um, in schools where students really feel like they belong and students really feel like mealtime is something that can unite them instead of divide them. So I think as long as we're in the situation where we're sorting students based on their economic class into these different categories of free, reduced, paid, uh, we're not really doing what we need to do to create um, a, a place where students really feel like they can be, um, you know, um, themselves and not judged for what they're eating. So I think that it's really important to be um, not just thinking about um, this from the perspective of um, you know, one piece, which might be the economics, but also be thinking about the health component and be thinking about how much time and energy parents and in particular moms tend to spend actually packing school meals for kids if they aren't participating in the meal um, program. So there's a lot of different ways in which universal school meals make sense. Um, but here in Wisconsin, even though I would say that it's, it's not a partisan issue in all states or um, really seen um, that way in a lot of other countries that offer universal school meals, um, so far, um, the politicians that have endorsed the existing bill that was introduced in um, November of uh, 2021 have all been Democrats. So I think in this state, um, the big thing that we need to do in order to really move forward on universal school meals is for people to be talking um, with others across the state about, you know, why they might um, be interested in universal school meals, what it might mean for students or families in their community, and to really be talking about this as an issue that benefits um, everyone in the state and not people from a particular, you know, community or a particular like partisan affiliation. So I think that it's something that has, unfortunately, um, at least in this state, um, become um, more uh, politicized than it should. Um, and it needs to be something that we really just try to find a common ground along um, so that we can pass bipartisan le legislation. And there are a number of states um, now that have successfully passed um, universal school meals for all, um, and some that have also really linked this to not just having free school meals for all students, but really thinking about the quality and how they can maximize public value by increasing local food purchasing and really putting money back into local food and farm economies through school meals purchasing. And those are some of the, the kinds of um, public policies um, that I'd really like to see us pursuing in the state. That's Dr. Jennifer Gaddis, uh, Associate Professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies at UW-Madison. We'd love for you to join our conversation about school meals and food equity 
Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or Message a Public Affair on Facebook. I'm going to turn back to uh, Josh Perkins from Madison Metropolitan School District for your response to uh, the issue of continued funding for universal school meals and their import- and its importance. Yeah, I just, in, in addition to the excellent points that, that Jen made, I, I, there was a great, as you finished, Jen, you were talking about focus, and that was what was on my mind as you were talking about this. It's a little bit tough to render this exactly, but I'll try the administrative burdens of tracking the different categories of payment and classification within the school system are are massive and any operation that you that you look at um, if you think about I'm, I'm a big proponent of trying to focus on the most important things and spend as, as little time as possible on the least important things but for the national school lunch program there is no option except to spend a lot of highly skilled time monitoring the categories of free reduced um, and paid meals because it's it's a requirement for federal reimbursement. If you did not have to do that, the operation could truly focus on the quality of food to a, to a, a far far greater extent. That that burden, the time that it takes to administer that entire procedure, all the procedures that support that, which are necessary to fund the programs in in a non-universal free meal scenario, is considerable. And I would. This is this is simply my position. I would far rather have uh, my team members up to and including um, the site members who all have to have Jen and I have talked about this several times, the really skilled knowledge and the substantial content knowledge that even somebody, a school operator serving a very simple meal has to have in order to fulfill the, the burdens of properly tracking payment and reimbursability. If all those were subtracted from the time that we have to take the the focus could shift to to all of the things some of the things that jen mentioned and just in general local purchasing um cleaner ingredients more scratch cooking all of the things that i think the community is is pretty much united and wanting to see more of that would be a huge boon simply for the resources particularly in a, in a limited resource situation saying well we don't we don't have to spend as much time or even any time on that so now we're going to shift the focus to food um that would be a huge change Jen, you'd like yeah, to so respond. I just wanted to, to yeah. build on. Yeah, I just wanted to build on that for one second to say that um, I work quite a bit with food service directors from across the state through the Healthy School Meals for All Wisconsin Coalition. And one of the things that I've heard from many people about this new school year is that with the return to free reduced paid meals, they're actually spending a ton of time contacting families about unpaid meal debt. So um, just hours upon hours upon hours of time, not only categorizing students and making sure that we're following federal guidelines, but then when families um, unfortunately may be unable to pay their bills, um, students may be subjected to policies that can um, really um, be quite harming for them in terms of how they're signaled out for having unpaid meal debt. And it can be just a huge um, time suck, honestly, for programs to have to uh, be contacting families about um, getting those payments. And it's, it's not, you know, I think a very good thing um, for the relationship between um, the families and school either to be having this um, contention surrounding unpaid meal debt. And that's something that we see happening um, in just a variety of school districts across the state that I think could be avoided if we had um, universal school meals for all in the state. 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. If you'd like to join our conversation about school meals and food equity, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or you can tweet us or message us on Facebook. Uh, you've Many of you have been talking about the um, importance and desire to include more scratch cooking in school meals, and obviously to do that, we need fresh produce, and um, I'd like to bring Allison Paff Harris in here from Reap Food Group to talk about the state of farm, this farm-to-school program here in Madison and, and statewide, and the current state of efforts to provide locally grown food in school cafeterias. Allison. Great. Thanks, Douglas, for having me. And just to add on to what Josh and Jennifer were saying about uh, free meals for all, I've had the opportunity to um, be an auditor for the National School Lunch Program in my um, 10 years of uh, working in school nutrition programs. And I just wanted to add, I agree with all of their thoughts and points. Um, and I just, I, I want to stress too, that, you know, often people will think, um, you know, universal free meals is an issue that'll benefit only large cities, but this is something that'll benefit small and large school districts throughout the state. So really, um, really trying to see the effort for universal free meals as a silver lining of COVID, and hopefully we can we can work to pass that here in, uh, in Wisconsin. Um, as for local foods into schools, um, another silver lining of, of COVID is the federal government and their support for providing more funding to school nutrition programs to purchase locally. Um, announced last week is uh, the Department of Public Instruction School Nutrition team here in Wisconsin got $3.4 million to encourage schools uh, to purchase locally. So to, and that money can be purchased on raw product or minimally processed product. And so um, there was a, a call last week announcing that and trying to brainstorm uh, here at REAP, we're trying to brainstorm ways to help uh, school districts throughout Southern Wisconsin. We've spent a long time partner with Madison and um, we, we look forward to that part or we have always looked forward to that partnership, but then also looking forward to ways we can support other schools um, throughout Southern Wisconsin. Thank you, Allison. Would others like to share their perspective on farm to school and uh, both its current state and prospects for farm to school? I'd love yeah. to pop in just for a second, because um, I'm actually on the advisory board for the National Farm to School Network. And I think that sometimes um, we can get stuck in these conversations about farm to school as being like specifically getting local food into schools. But two of the really important elements of farm to school are actually um, food and nutrition education and school gardens. So um, I'll leave it at that and maybe others can talk about the food, nutrition, education, school gardens piece, because I think MMSD is doing some work in those areas as well. I would only comment to say I'd love to know more about uh, the work MMSD is doing in school gardens. I, my, my previous time in K-12A spent a lot of time on, on those kinds of projects, and I, I have rarely seen something that, that is more powerful in changing how a student thinks about food than to be directly involved in it. Um, it, it is more powerful than putting up any sign. It is more powerful than explaining anything about how great the nutrition is. Uh, my own my own son is is the same way. Very picky eater. Who if if there's a seed planted or something like this, some direct involvement, it will it's guaranteed to change the degree of openness about trying something new and having a more varied diet, and in many cases having a diet that is less processed. So I'd I'd love to spend some time this fall learning more about it because I do know I agree, Jen. I, there's there's work going on out there. I'm just not exactly sure of the scope of all of it, uh, but I also agree that farm to school um, should mean 
helping helping kids understand uh, as much as possible about not only that here is a local farm and it's easy to relate to it. Um, it's close by, you know, the town that's located in. Those are all strong characteristics, but also to say, well, what if your food doesn't come from a farm like that one? Um, what do you need to know about what happens to your food before it gets here? What do you need to know about farms in general in America, how they operate and what choices you might want to make as you get older and you become more independent in your eating choices? Because that happens very, very fast. That's that's my observation on it is before you know it, um, these kids are are making their own choices in a fairly broad market of food choices. And you have a short time, I think, a very short time to say, this is a good time for you to educate yourself on what you want, what you think you deserve as far as nutrition and food. And that's an important thing to get in their hands, I think. Very important. Thank you, Josh. Um, AmeriCorps, I believe, is involved with school gardens in Madison, correct? Does anybody want to shed any light on that or what's happening with school gardens in Madison? I'm happy to jump in there, uh, Douglas. So um, Rooted is one of a, a wonderful nonprofit based here in Madison, and they believe they have three to four AmeriCorps this year who are helping to support the MMSD school gardens. Um, Madison uh, is home to a number of, of nonprofits that are, are working to support the farm to school efforts, Rooted being one of them, REAP as well. Um, and so we are always continuing to explore ways we can help to support one another. Um, jumping into talking a little bit more about the educational piece of farm to school, uh, MMSD Food Nutrition and REAP were awarded a USDA Farm to School grant, uh, written pre-COVID, awarded during COVID. And one of the hiccups of that is trying to figure out, okay, how do we implement a grant that had a lot of in-person activities uh, when we're still trying to, to uh, balance the, the craziness or the upside down of, uh, of the world that is, is COVID. Um, and so what we did is we, uh, as a team, we pivoted to taking students virtually on virtual farm field trips. And so uh, this past spring, we toured uh, MMSD students in grades K through five had the opportunity to tour uh, Wonka's Harvest as well as Vitruvian Farms. And then this fall, there's actually four virtual farm field trips scheduled. Last week, we went to Door Creek Orchard. This week, we're going to be going to Driftless Organics, about two hours west of Madison and doing a virtual farm tour for um, K through five kiddos. And then we'll next week, we'll be uh, Squashington Farm in Mount Horeb. Uh, consistently, there's been about 1,100 kids uh, joining in on those tours. So that is one way that we are working to uh, bring the farm to MMSD students. Um, another uh, way that REAP has been involved in, um, in farm to school with MMSD is working on a bringing a farm to school snack to schools that participate in the fresh fruit and vegetable program. Uh, this has been a longstanding program that REAP has partnered with MMSD on and we're excited to be kicking it off uh, this week with local snack peppers going to those fresh fruit and vegetable uh, schools. Wonderful. I love the image of, of seeing these uh, students taking the virtual tours and, and ooing and aahing as they, they see fresh produce and how it's gr um, grown. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. We're talking about school meals and child nutrition, food equity. There's still time for you to join our conversation today. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or tweet us or message us on Facebook. And though our pledge drive is over, we'd still love 
to hear from you uh, with a donation if you are enjoying what you're hearing today and finding it informative and helpful as we talk about an issue that affects all of us, even if we don't have children in school right now. The nutrition of young people is a vitally important public health issue, and that's what we're talking about today and getting some great perspectives on with Allison Paff Harris from Reap Food Group, Jennifer Gaddis from UW-Madison, and Joshua Perkins and Ursula Ballard from MMS. Um, I'd like to uh, spend a little time talking about what people who are interested can do to help improve school meals in Madison and make school gardens and food education more widespread in the district. Um, Ursula, I'd like to turn back to you, bring you back into the conversation if you have any ideas about how you can uh, see community involvement working. Well, I mean, as far as community involvement, um, we do have, um, if, uh, if parents or even community members are interested in going to the MMSD website, we do have a volunteer link and you can sign up to actually uh, become involved. Um, um, you know, you can actually become involved uh, that way. Another thing I did want to mention is that um, we, um, this school year, we will be working with the high school students um, at, um, at some of our um, high schools, they have like a culinary competition. Um, and so the, the students would be given uh, certain guidelines, like for example, not um, you know, creating a meal, not using sodium, but you can use any other type of uh, fresh spice or herb um, to actually create a um, USDA compliant meal that we can actually serve in, in schools. So you know, um, another way is also getting your, um, you know, getting your students involved and, um, you know, um, getting students in, involved and, you know, um, definitely opportunities um, um, to, to volunteer with, with, with the district to, um, you know, to get your ideas as far as um, how, um, you know, how we can um, also work together to, um, to serve the, the, uh, the students in MMSD. Thanks, Ursula. Josh, would you like to add anything about what folks can do to help improve school meals in Madison and food education more broadly? Yeah, I think in addition to the points that Ursula made, um, one of the trickiest things, I've always seen this to be the case, is is getting both students, um, be, largely because they're often very pressed for time, um, and sometimes because they're they're not, uh, they don't they don't maybe see it as a priority, or parents to say what they what they do want in school meals, what they want more of. Uh, it can be. Um, I think, you know, it's it's general knowledge that there are certain foods that are out there, not only in schools, in the mass marketplace that are very tempting, they're very delicious and and not seen as the most healthy, frequent eating choices. You know, like, for example, I love pizza and I remember seeing uh, at one point there was a food triangle, a nutrition triangle drawn up by um, somebody and pizza wasn't even on it. They had it, it excluded pizza. It was so unhealthy. That was that was kind of their sense of things. Like, well, I love pizza and a lot of people do. Should you eat it all the time? Should you, you know, is a, a delicious, you know, ham and cheese sandwich? Should you eat it every day? Probably not. You know, what what could you do to mix up the diet? And so we've discussed a few ideas. Um, the competition, just just keying off of what Ursula mentioned, we, we discussed it, it's this in a few um, meetings to try to get students in the high schools to um, think about culinary competitions is something that could result in menu engagement in the school. 
so that it was kind of bringing it outside of the glamorous world of television cooking competitions and saying you can still have that fun competitive team spirit um but let's try to come up with something that we could serve on your menu and promote the fact that you were in again the engagement part of it that you were involved in it so i love hearing from students and parents about and i and i need to hear from both about what it is that that did that worked well or like i haven't seen this on your menu would you could you please work on featuring this and it could be something really really simple my you know my students love roasted butternut squash would you is there a way you could get that on the menu uh, that really gives us material to work with um, that can be very tricky to gather and time consuming it's well worth it um, but sometimes it can be tough to, to take a thorough survey that way but that's that's the information that i i really feel i can grab onto and say let let me set my team to getting a plan together to get these things on the menu more frequently yeah, so I, I just wanted to jump in and say that I appreciate these suggestions for like direct service and direct involvement, but I also think that we really need to be focusing on how can we make collective action happen and how can we do things that are really going to leverage some of the existing structures that we have. So I want to tell a brief story about how this culinary competition thing actually came into fruition. So um, the Latham Equity in Action Group, which is linked to one of the PTOs, I believe, um, at one of the local elementary schools, hosted a virtual gathering um, last spring um, to really talk about issues of food justice in the Madison schools. And there was a teacher there, Emily Sonneman, who's the family and consumer science um, teacher from East High, who attended that and expressed an interest in these issues. So over the summer, myself and my colleague Amy Washbush met with her and we kind of talked about, well, based on your position and what you see, like, what could you do or what do you want to do? And uh, we kind of talked about um, what she could do with her culinary classes and the culinary club at East and then kind of came to the district and talked with them about it. So I think that there's ways that like PTOs can be um, hosting these conversations and also be working towards particular kinds of policy changes and individual teachers or there's a couple different student organizations actually in different high schools um, that I'm um, also involved with right now can sort of come up with things that they think make sense based on their positionality and their interests and hopefully we can find ways to kind of work together and support those things to really work towards more like systems change within the district. So I guess the last thing that I would say about that is that um, I do think it's really important for us to be um, thinking about bringing in more resources into the program and really changing some of the basic ways in which we do things. So one of the number one complaints that I hear people talk about is actually the amount of time that students have to eat. Well, one of the real challenges is that we don't define mealtime as curriculum time. That's a policy decision, right? So some of these things that are actually gonna make a really big difference for how school meals feel and their educational potential are things like universal school meals, um, meal times as curriculum time um, that are actually like policy decisions that we have to go to a larger level to ultimately be able to change. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is like trying to do more political education for people around school meal systems and how we start to shift those things. And I think that if we can sort of plug into more of these existing um, groups like PTOs or student organizations or classes, um, that's a real way to start doing that in the district. So if anyone's interested, very happy to continue doing that kind of engagement work um, myself. And I have a few colleagues who are also interested in doing that as well. So please feel free to reach out. Thank you, Jen. Allison, would you like to share your thoughts on public involvement in food issues in schools? 
Sure, I'll, I'll add off of uh, what Jen and, and Ursula and Josh mentioned. Um, I do want to give a, a, I think the the local school wellness policy is also a great place to, to um, involve the community. And I want to kind of tie Jen and Ursula together. Um, I know that uh, Ursula is working hard on the local school wellness policy to get a meal seat time included in the MMSD wellness policy, which I think is still um, I think I think made it through uh, the the passage with the the school board, which is great to see. Um, you know, kids definitely need time to to eat, to socialize, and to eat. And having that that seated meal time is is very very important. So excited to see that move along. So I would say the um, local school wellness policy, in addition to all the efforts that that Jen, Josh, and Ursula all mentioned. Thank you, Allison. In the in the little time we have left here on a public affair this afternoon. I would love to have us do a little bit of a imagining exercise to um, share share with folks what you see where, where, as an emblematic, nutritious, and culturally relevant cafeteria and school lunch. I'd love to hear what that looks like for each of you when you imagine what you would like the um, health and experience of meals for uh, our community's children to be. Uh, I'll start with you, Ursula. We'll come back to you. Just paint us a picture of what, what it looks like for you. Um, so for, for myself, I would say um, for, for MMSD uh, students or, I mean, really for, for any student um, uh, anywhere, um, working where the food and nutrition department has direct access to local, uh, to local farmers where we would be able to source enough um, on a large scale for um, literally for, for our entire district. Um, uh, number one, um, whether that be um, fruits, vegetables, I mean, anything locally. And then also to have the funding available at the, not only just the state, but at the federal level where the funding is available. So we have the opportunity um, to source, to train, educate, provide staff with the training to, to, to literally uh, showcase and provide those meals on the highest scale possible. Um, and then also getting away from, uh, I, I think I've worked in, in school nutrition for, for several years and then I also work with um, the, um, 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 the um, um, uh, farm to school, and then also the um, 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 state state run programs as well. And I think there, I mean, in my opinion, and I'm, I'm, I know that it's been mentioned here in other places that there's a stigma with school meals. So really providing really healthy meals that um, you know sometimes you look on social media and you can't tell the difference if that's um, a meal that's served at a um, in a school or or in a restaurant as well because of the variety. I mean, you have um, fresh um, fresh vegetables, fresh fruits, but um, yeah. So so really to have number one the funding, training, sourcing, um, and then the funding at the um, at the national level, so all students have have access uh, to that. And then um, another huge portion with that is um, education and making sure that the nutrition education is something that is um, um, a part, uh, number one, a part of the curriculum that's actually being taught every day. And then when the students come to the cafeteria, 
um, they they actually see that um, they actually see that um, as well too. And I and I I mean, not to say that um, it's in. Um, I, I like I said I worked in other districts and um, the nutrition education part, um, portion definitely is an area that is uh, missing. So also having the funding at a national level to actually do that, um, you know, as well. Um, because I've, I've worked with the like the TANF programs and um, uh, things like that, and and funding to actually train enough people to actually get them out and actually um, uh, train everyone, and to actually make sure that that training is available for parents as well. Thank you, Ursula. Uh, we're not going to have enough time to get to everybody's vision of the ideal school uh, meal experience, but Jen, I'd like you to uh, shed a little bit of light just in our, our final minute here on uh, culturally relevant meals. You mentioned that term earlier, and in particular, what uh, a wonderful slate of culturally relevant meals would look like. Yeah, well, I think it's really important for students to feel nourished when they're in the school um, in a setting, whether it be through the meals that they're consuming or like the experience itself, like people need to feel seen and reflected and cared for um, in school spaces. And I think one way that that happens is for people to feel like their culture is being affirmed and celebrated. And sometimes school meals, because they can um, you know, be designed in a way that um, maybe is um, supposed to appeal to the maximum number of people um, can um, end up uh, not necessarily incorporating a lot of the diverse like food histories and cultures of current student bodies. So I think it's really important to um, be creating opportunities for involvement for students and for um, local like restaurateurs. A lot of like really great school food programs actually now have um, like chefs councils where people like around the city who may actually have like, you know, different um, culinary backgrounds and like um, food traditions that they're linked to, um, who can actually help advise the school district on serving different kinds of um, menus and like really exposing students, not just to things that might resemble what they might have at home on a special occasion and feel excited to eat, but also to teach students who maybe don't come from those same cultures about others through food. Like food can be a really great educational and learning tool. And if we're even thinking about this from um, not just an educational perspective, but from a sustainability perspective, it's actually really important that, that young people learn to enjoy the tastes and textures of a wide variety of different foods. If we're thinking about not just having this like super industrial monocrop kind of driven food system. So there's a lot of ways I think that doing culturally relevant meals that really speak to and celebrate the cultures of the student body um, can help with um, not only the educational potential of school meals, but also um, the environmental implications of what school meals can do if we start to do farm to school and source meals differently. But ultimately, I think it's about making sure that young people feel empowered, seen and heard and respected um, in the environments that they're asked to spend what like eight hours a day in. And I think one way we do that is by giving them um, some amount of, of choice um, within the food system. And I think that respecting them to understand um, that, yes, we have to operate within nutritional parameters, but then giving them some freedom within that space to really express um, themselves and their identities is really key to um, what I think of as being culturally relevant when it comes to school meals. Thanks so much. That's Jennifer Gaddis from UW-Madison. We've been talking with Josh Perkins from MMSD, Ursula Ballard from MMSD, and Allison Paff-Harris from REAP Food Group. 
Thank you all so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. I wish we could continue talking. Um, we uh, will stay in touch about this issue here on A Public Affair. Thanks for listening, everyone. It's been uh, an hour of public affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank our engineer, Andrew, our producer, Rochelle, who will be moving on to other projects. Thanks a million for bringing me into the Wart community, Rochelle. Thanks to news director, Shally. Thanks, listeners, for joining us here today on A Public Affair. And stay tuned for Madison Book Beat.